Well, good morning to you all, and it's uh, so great to be with you today. Greetings from Pastor Irene and I. Uh, we miss you all, but uh, we hope uh, in the very near future, we will be able to see you all again. So today we come to a close of one of the most groundbreaking passages of scriptures in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, spanning Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Well, you know, I think you will agree it's been a magnanimous journey, certainly a life-changing one, and uh, I trust that you have been, as Ezekiel would put it, eating the scroll, <laughs> and uh, that is taking it in and allowing time for it to settle in your heart and uh, in your spirit. It would be a real shame if, if it didn't because the Sermon on the Mount is genuinely life-changing, if we allow it to be. I'm certainly grateful for the various preachers, and there's been many over these uh, many Sundays, um, who have uh, worked through the, uh, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, opening up its uh, intricate and life-changing contents. You have done uh, preachers, you've done the hard work, uh, certainly for me today, as I uh, wrap up and uh, conclude this sermon series. Its impact is lifelong. Well, since my part today concerns the, uh, the final verses of the Sermon of the Mount in uh, chapter 7, in fact, verses 24 to 29, uh, which reflects back on everything that's uh, preceded it, we will spend some time looking back over what it has been saying to us. Hence, I recommend, you know, always have your Bibles or your electronic devices open. I really recommend that you have Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 open before you this morning. Uh, let's just briefly uh, commit uh, this uh, sermon, this message to prayer. And Lord, we always uh, need to commit the Word of God to you. It's your Word, after all, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will be the ultimate preacher and teacher, because only you, Lord, can deliver it to our hearts. So we pray, Lord, that all of this sermon series, Lord, Lord, that it will indeed be life-changing to us all. Lord, minister to our hearts and lives, to our families, to our workplaces, wherever we go, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, let's do a little bit of looking back, shall we, before we kind of uh, uh, wrap things up and you see a great culmination uh, at the end uh, of chapter 7 later. But uh, back to chapter 5. You will remember that, uh, well, of course you will remember <laughs> the, uh, the prologue to this uh, three-chapter sermon in chapter 5 consists of what we call the Beatitudes. Uh, we've heard of that many, many times, uh, the, the title Beatitudes, of which there are eight, reflecting righteousness and holy living. That's really what they do reflect, righteousness and holy living. This section is immediately arresting 
<laughs> you know, sooner start reading chapter five, and it's uh, it it is uh, arresting uh, to us, to to our hearts and our minds. It might consist of few words, but they say pages and pages. In a nutshell, they are attitudes and actions that should characterize Jesus' followers and uh, disciples. There's no doubt regarding their import and the eventual result of living in such righteousness, because uh, all the Beatitudes are prepositioned by the words, blessed are. The Beatitudes, therefore, set the tone. They set the tone, the pace, the heart, and our responsibility to it for all that follows in chapters 5 to 7. Every verse we read in these three chapters uh, kind of harken back uh, to these powerful and introductory words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Well, following these first 12 verses of chapter 5 come the impact upon the world and all creation of living within the framework of the Beatitudes. Hence, by practicing them, we become salt rather than tasteless dilution, some kind of thing that it, it, there's no taste to it, it, it's diluted. We become light to the world with good works rather than a hidden and darkened vessel consumed with itself. After all, says verses 17 to 19 in chapter 5. This has always been God's word, from whether it's from law or whether from prophet. If we fail to heed God's word, we fall into the same category, uh, in fact, as, uh, as the scribes and the Pharisees who lack all righteousness. Having laid these early foundations in the Beatitudes, Jesus then gets down to a number of practicalities. It's very practical, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. A number of practicalities about how to live in righteousness and not as the scribes and Pharisees. <laughs> this kind of is the beginning punctuation to it all. And this commences in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, with the real meaning of murder, hating your brother, and in verse 27, with the real meaning of adultery, lusting for another. The latter moving seamlessly into the subject of marriage and divorce there in verse 31, since the sole focus of spouses in marriage is to focus on one another. And all this smoothly leads to the matter of vows and oaths in verse 33, which legitimizes marriage in the first place, these uh, oaths and uh, vows. So Jesus says, make sure, make sure you make your vows and, uh, and oaths effective and not make false ones swearing by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or something else. That is, you should be true to your word without having to uh, 
to swear by some kind of external object or agency. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no there in verse 37. Then Jesus corrects another misdeed of the scribes and Pharisees, emphasizing again their lack of righteousness, who were teaching an eye for an eye there in verse 38 as justification for revenge, which greatly suited their purposes, of course. Rather than revenge, retaliation and getting even, Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in uh, verse 44 of chapter 5. If not, we will fit into the same sordid and sad category of the scribes and Pharisees, with an added sordid and sad category in those days, tax collectors, there in verse 46. Well, following this astounding and arresting start in chapter 5, Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. The three chapters of the sermon move constantly forward, you will notice, um, pacing its way on a journey through life with many windows to the world outside and our Christian part in it. Hence, scholars saw a long time ago a body of writing closely connected to the themes of chapter 5, primarily righteousness and holy living, and uh, called it chapter 6 and later 7 to follow. It's an incredible chapter, this chapter 6, of contrasts. D did you notice that when the preachers took you through it? The contrast is uh, very deliberate, very intentional. And uh, this, in fact, is its primary structure, employing very much the, the Jewish poetical writing genre of contrast and comparison. Hence, we, we read such offsets, such as, in the way we give, whether we are seeking the honor of God or the honor of man, there in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6. Also, in the way, not only the way we give, but in the way we pray, again, whether we are seeking the honor, the honor of God or the honor of man in verses 5 to 15. And there's more, even in the way we fast. There's these three things here, giving, praying, and fasting. In the way we fast, still again, whether we are seeking the honor of God or the honor of man, in verses 16 to 18. The contrasts and the polar opposites of these ways of living is genuinely astounding. And once again, in uh, all of this is uh, punctuated uh, right at the beginning of verse 1 of uh, chapter 6 by the theme of righteousness. This is the, the golden thread that runs uh, through all of chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon of the, the Mount, right? Uh, this is the golden thread, uh, righteousness and holy living. And uh, 
So, uh, but here, not, uh, not just to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, as back in chapter 5, but that we uh, do not practice righteousness before men, there in verse 1 of chapter 6. Because it is before people at large that uh, we might prefer to practice it in a way that is visible, uh, it is clear, it is obvious, everybody can see it, know it, it's, it's uh, very obvious to everyone, uh, without uh, any mistaken interpretation, uh, giving the, the desired impression about how good, how holy, and uh, how righteous we are. So, this is why Jesus commences chapter 6 with when you give alms and deeds of charity, do not sound a trumpet before you. They're, they're pretty loud, you know. Some of you probably don't realize this, but uh, some years ago, I won't tell you how many, I used to play the trumpet. In fact, I used to play the piano. I learned music and music theory, and I played the piano a bit and went through a few years of that, uh, and, and uh, even the trumpet. I was in a brass band for a while, in fact. But do not sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do, there in verse 2. Better to seek the honor of God rather than man, and do it in secret. And while Jesus stays on the theme of righteousness and holy living, he throws in the extra examples of prayer, starting in verse 5, and fasting, starting in verse 16. Again, the, uh, the teaching is the same. It's very clear. Who do we really want recognition and honor from? From God or from man? Sure, with the latter, you get your immediate reward of uh, honor and praise from men, but don't expect anything more. In contrast, Things done for God in secret are always, they're actually always noticed by Him. He notices everything we do. He sees our hearts, and He is the one who ultimately rewards. This is not all that uh, Jesus does in these first 18 verses of chapter 6, comparing and contrasting the honor of man with the honor of God. Continuing his clear forward movement of crucial teaching for his disciples, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach more about these issues he has just mentioned, such as prayer, by actually teaching how to pray. So uh, we start reading there, it says, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, in verses 9 to 13, it goes on, the structure uh, of this prayer is very clear. That is, start out with a focus on God by praising Him and recognizing Him there in 6 verse 9. And uh, particularly and notably, holy is His name. After all, think of it, the entire Sermon of the Mount starting with the Beatitudes, is themed and punctuated by righteous and holy living. So, no wonder this prayer starts with uh, 
him being uh, holy, holy is thy name. That is, if God is holy, the implication is, so should we be. Yeah, there's more to this prayer than what uh, initially meets the eye. And following the recognition of who he is, the Lord's Prayer then requests that your kingdom come and your will be done in verse 10. Again, saying that this holy righteousness that marks uh, our Father is imperative uh, that it be found uh, in us, found in our families, found in our church, found in our nation, and uh, in the world. The third portion of the Lord's Prayer then allows for personal requests, acknowledging that we need, that we need help. If this holy righteousness of God is ever to be manifest in us. So uh, that's why we read in verses 11 to 13, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and let us not be led into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yes, we need help to live these holy and righteous lives. So uh, even this prayer is just so uh, cemented and beautifully linked uh, with the entire Sermon on the Mount. Finally, the prayer ends where it started, giving thanks and praise to a holy and righteous God. The kingdom, power, and glory. Amen. In verse 13. Well, let's move on. So following this uh, first half, chapter 6 continues with its Hebrew poetic form of comparison and contrast. Whether we want to store up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven, see the contrast there in verses 19 to 23. Whether we want to serve God or serve mammon, more contrast uh, in verse 24. And whether we will depend on God in this life or be forever anxious in uh, 25 to 34. It's again a matter of choice. Remember, God gives us choices in this life. We are not robots, right? Um, we are not uh, robots following some predetermined software algorithm to follow. We are created free will agents with a God-given morality and the responsibility to live holy and righteous lives. So, drawing on the masterpiece, I call it, spiritual drama of, uh, uh, if I might do this on Elijah and uh, uh, there in Mount Carmel, we should choose this day whom we will serve. If we are for God, serve him. If we are for Baal, serve him. There in 1 Kings chapter 18. But don't be lukewarm. Don't have a foot in both camps. Isn't this what the Sermon on the Mount is all about? To strongly exhort and advise us to choose God, his ways, his holy living, his righteousness. We pray that it be so in the Lord's Prayer, but we still have to action it ourselves. 
As usual, even in the latter half of chapter six, Jesus will use his major themes as a platform to say more. So he kind of introduces his chapter and then in a way kind of goes back and elaborates on some things. So here come some further illustrations. So for example, he dramatically illustrates what ultimately happens when we focus our major attention on treasures on this earth in verses 19 to 23. There is no mistake. Possessions, power, positions, and the like eventually fade away. Be it rust or moth or something else, it will not last. It will not endure. And it's about the health of the body, how you see things. That is, an unwholesome, unrighteous eye is not going to see things with a godly, eternal perspective. You would, in fact, be better off having no eye, actually, but an eye that is righteous, seeing earthly and, and uh, eternal realities in their correct perspective, that's what we need to do. It's about the heart, of course, because if your heart is unrighteous, so will your eye be, and so will everything else. So the teaching on treasures is a master stroke for further genius, given what follows next. It all ultimately traces back to who or what our master is. Right from the start, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. There in 6 verse 24. A lot of people apparently think they can, but this is illogical irrational and impossible. And uh, they seem not to know that an earthly master will cause us to lead us, uh, well, into a lot of anxiety, will cause us to be very anxious, stressed and worrisome. That's the kind of lives that we could otherwise leave. And uh, that we would uh, lead those kind of lives, which is uh, not good at all. So Jesus emphasized those things in verses 25 to 31. We fool ourselves if we think we can, as did the prophets of Baal in the Mount Carmel story. This is delusion in its ultimate form. Jesus knows these are things the Gentiles eagerly seek, verse 32. But we, however, are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in verse 33. Quite different. <laughs> so it's all back to righteousness once again, as we just saw in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and all about righteousness. That's this theme, this golden thread through all the Sermon of the Mount, holy living and living a righteous life. So yes, it's all back to righteousness once again. And at the end of chapter six, just like how the sermon began in chapter five. Finally, we leave chapter six with the, with the reminder, do not be anxious for tomorrow, verse 34, because laying up for ourselves treasures upon earth or thinking we can actually serve two masters, is going to lead us to a very anxious 
an unrighteous life indeed. Now we come to chapter 7, the final chapter, the final of this uh, uh, three-chapter trilogy in the Sermon of the Mount. The Hebrew poetical genre continues with more comparison and contrast. And so continues the upward forward movement of Jesus' teaching as he reaches the culmination and finalization of his seminal teachings in this eternally impacting sermon. As usual, um, as the earlier uh, preachers in this series elaborated, uh, we see tensions between alternatives, contrasted again and again, choices we have to make, like the following, whether we want to judge others or judge ourselves first, chapter 7, verses 1 to 2, whether we emphasize the log in other people's eyes or the speck in our own, uh, verses 3 to 5, whether we think God hands out stones and snakes when we ask him for help, or loaves and fishes, verses 7 to 12, whether we enter through the narrow gate or the wide gate, verses 13 to 14, whether we are good fruit on a good tree or bad fruit on a bad tree, verses 15 to 20, and whether we are a wise man building his house on a rock or a foolish man building his house on the sand in verses 24 to 27. So a lot is going to be said in chapter 7 to wrap up and emphasize Jesus' teachings. As uh, you would correctly predict, given the uh, sermon journey so far, the overriding theme of righteousness and holy living appears early in this chapter, 7 also. Right between, right in between the teaching on judging him impartially in verses 1 to 5, and the teaching on the narrow and the wide gates and good and bad trees with their uh, uh, inevitable bad fruits, verses 13 to 30. Hence the very noticeable section on do not, this is when we first see these words, we think, wow, what's all this about, you know? But hence the very noticeable section, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, verse 6 of chapter 7. After all, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately about, righteousness and holy living. This theme goes all the way through this three-chapter sermon. And let's not be under any disillusionment about it. The bottom line of the Sermon on the Mount is, if we do not live and practice it, that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21. In fact, it says, uh, the word that is used is many. It says, many on that day will say, well... <laughs> We did this for you, we did that for you, but Jesus says, I never knew you, there in verse 23. 
Such is the arresting reality of the Sermon on the Mount. That is, unrighteousness and unholy living is one day going to catch up with us. We can't hide it. We can't pretend it to be otherwise. We can't hyper-grace it away or falsely reason that Jesus will surely welcome me in and accept me anyway or argue that Jesus is too loving to reject anybody. It just doesn't work that way. The Sermon on the Mount makes that abundantly clear. And now this brings us to my short portion of the Sermon of the, of the Mount, the, uh, the few verses at the end, where Jesus really nails, <laughs> he really nails the import of his teaching thus far. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. This is Jesus' conclusion to the sermon on the mount. It's very powerful. It's, it's brilliant. It's effective. It's a, a revelation, really. He commences his conclusion by saying, everyone who hears these words there in, in uh, verse 24, as we just read, that is, what he has been saying so far in chapters 5, 6, and 7, right, we've, of which we have briefly reviewed, now with the final punch of Hebrew poetry, some call it the knockout blow, um, he paints a powerful comparison and contrast. If you forget all other illustrations so far in these chapters, you surely won't forget this one. Let's have a look at it. There are two men, two houses, and two results. One hears the, the words of Jesus and acts upon them, does them. The other also hears the same words of Jesus, but does not act upon them or, or doesn't do them, as some translations say. Remember chapters 5, 6, and 7, which underscore living in righteousness and holiness. Anyone can hear, right? I think you would agree. Anyone can hear. But do we do them? Do we act upon them? It's one thing to hear. It's another thing to do them. There's a lot of hearing going on in this world, but not a whole lot of doing. 
And so herein lies the crunch, the bottom line, the challenge, and the ultimate choice. It's back to choices again. Notice, notice that the surrounding situation and conditions are, they're exactly the same for the two men. Uh, we read there, uh, well, for one, in, in, in verse 25, it says the rain fell and the, and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And we read a couple of verses later in verse 27, the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. The same, the same conditions. You see, uh, there were three elements in all of this. First, there was the rain. <laughs> so far, so good. Rain is not so bad. I might be justified. After all, living an unrighteous or unholy life, I might just fudge it. I might just scrape through. Second, the floods came. Maybe not so bad on the surface, all looks to be uh, also okay so far, but the trouble is the foundations, and you can't always see them. Water eventually seeps down under the ground and can soften things up. But so far, on external uh, appearances anyway, my unrighteous or unholy living still looks like it can pay dividends and my eternal future, uh, and maybe I can survive intact. I have been apparently able to live my life my way and get away with it, or so it looks. Third, the winds come. Like typhoons in uh, North Queensland, uh, I've been through uh, cyclones, uh, typhoons uh, here in North Queensland, uh, category four to, and five. Uh, wind gusts, you know, 350 kilometers per hour. I tell you, it is scary. <laughs> um, it is really, uh, truly frightening to hear the howl, that howl of the wind and uh, uh, and things blowing around and being destroyed like you never would imagine. When nature goes wild, it's wild. Well, the winds came. They were blowing pretty hard. Now comes the real test of the foundation. External appearances won't suffice anymore. Excuses begin to fade. Self-justification is disappearing fast. When the foundations are soft, the wind is going to cause the house to break. But when the foundations are strong, water will not affect them. And so the wind won't move the house. Notice that the adverse winds of life blew and slammed against the house. That's in both verse 25 and 27. It, it blew and it slammed. That's a, that's, those are strong words uh, against the house, which, which the world often does against us. 
but how do we treat it? How do we meet it, of course? These winds were relentless, continuing, unabating, unbelievably strong, and they would surely test the quality of the house. The results, the contrast, continuing this Hebrew poetic genre of comparison and contrast. As I said, even if you forget all other illustrations, Jesus concluding this way, you won't forget this illustration. The results, the contrast is acute and apparent. The house built on the foundation of sand ultimately collapses. The house on the rock survives, in fact, endures and thrives. For the house built on sand, we see the added emphasis in verse 27, and great was its fall. It wasn't just a fall, it was a great fall. It's not a temporary or minimal fall from which it can recover. It won't recover. Its fall was great. It is finished. It is totally and completely destroyed. There's no future for this house. It's gone. This is the end result, bringing the Sermon of the Mount to a great uh, orchestrated crescendo. Hearing the words of Jesus and acting on them is like the person living a righteous and holy life. Right? The Christian life is not for mucking around with, really. Uh, we have plenty of joy. We have peace. We can enjoy the Lord's presence. But uh, remember that uh, there's also a requirement for disciples on how to live. We can't have a foot in the world and a foot in God. It just doesn't work that way. That's just building a house upon sand. You will thrive, and your uh, eternal future is secure if you live a holy and righteous life. That's building your house on the rock, who is Jesus. Hearing the words of Jesus and not acting on them is like the person going his own way, choosing not to live a righteous and holy life. You think you can serve God and Baal too. Now, there's two closing verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read them, verse 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. I'll bet they were, <laughs> for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Notice again the comparison and contrast, even here, right through to the very end of the, this sermon. Jesus' teaching contrasted with that of the scribes and implication, uh, Pharisees. And so we are right back to where the Sermon on the Mount started in chapter 5. There is the teaching of Jesus back then that even if faced with persecution, the righteous will receive the kingdom of heaven. Back there in 5 verse 10, compared to the unrighteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees who shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, there in 5 verse 20. Such is the carefully woven garment in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Those living out Jesus' words will be like a house built on the rock, Jesus himself. Those not living out the words of Jesus. You know, it's, there's much more to the Christian life than attendances and memberships and, you know, just some kind of uh, verbal assent. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. Um, this uh, sermon is arresting. We've got to live the life. Uh, we might be hearers, but are we doers? That's the person who has built his house upon a rock. Those not living out the words of Jesus will be like a house built on the shady and sifting sands of the world. Treasures are somewhere else. Heart is somewhere else. Of which will not endure and it will ultimately collapse. But the former leads to righteous living. The latter does not. Now, one final thing before we close. Some of you might be asking, in fact, I, I hope you are asking, I, we are all asking, how can I build my house on a rock? I don't want to build my life on my, uh, or my family's on sand. Another thing we should be asking, how do I enter the narrow gate? For the scripture is clear that many will unwisely choose the easy and wide gate uh, there in 7.13. And a third uh, question we might be asking, how can I be the good tree which produces good fruit rather than the bad tree which produces bad fruit there in 7.17? You know, the Lord already provided the answer in the same chapter 7. I'm going to read this as well. I think it's important. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. You've been through this in one of the previous sessions. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? As we conclude this month-long, I think it was, <laughs> Sermon on the Mount, let it be very, very clear. These three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, teach on living a life of righteousness and holy living. That's that golden thread all the way through. Doing your own thing and Living a life of lawlessness will never cut it when we go to meet with the Lord. Don't play around with the things of God. Might I emphasize that? Because I know in our modern world, we kind of want to dilute things and, uh, uh, you know, water things down. And uh, sometimes we just overdo that 
you know, Jesus, some loving buddy who I'll, you know, I'll kind of scrape through. Not when you read the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching. It's not mine. It's not even the apostle. It's Jesus teaching. As anyone who knows future states, it's him. We should take these words seriously in this sermon. So don't make excuses. Don't try and justify your way around this sermon. Or the result will sadly be very clear, as we read. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness in 723. So seek first the kingdom of God. Always keep seeking. Always keep knocking. God will open doors for you. Don't take your valuable Christian life for granted. Remember the old hymn. In fact, I think if I've got it right, uh, this was the hymn for our um, 75th uh, anniversary. And did you know that I was um, part of the, of the choir? Uh, yeah, I was singing some English songs. I was singing some Chinese songs, uh, very badly, of course. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we were tutored uh, uh, through all of this by Pastor One, uh, such an excellent choir master. And, um, but remember the old hymn, because it's, 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 it's based on the sermon, you know. Um, I'll just say the words. I won't sing them, because you, you'll all run away if I do that. But uh, the words are, my house is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's the righteousness again. I dare not trust the sweetest frame house on the sand, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. That's the house on the rock. All other ground is sinking sand. And I remember very much uh, uh, Pastor One when we were in our early stages, we didn't emphasize sinking sand. He said, you, you've got to emphasize the S's in it. It's not just sinking sand or stinking sand or something like that. It's sinking sand. We really had to emphasize the result of that house for good reason. Um, all other ground is sinking sand, uh, as written by Edward Mote in Sussex in 1834. Thank you. <laughs> for the opportunity to share these concluding words on the Sermon on the Mount to you today. I trust that the Lord will convict our hearts where they need convicting, and that the word of the Lord will always be a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God bless you, and thank you. Thank you.